Hey everybody, welcome to Talk Gnosis After Dark. I'm Father Tony. Jonathan is joining me on the other side of the border up in the great frozen north. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm well. How are you, Father Tony? Good, good. Uh, how many how many feet of snow do you have yet? Uh, you know what? It's been a remarkably warm uh, fall and it's been a remarkably warm November. So uh, Remember, this is airing uh, like December 12th or something. So how many inches of snow do you have in the future? Oh, yes, that's right. It's December 12th. I forgot. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. We're moving <laughs> up to our necks. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I have to take a dog sled here that, to my house. To your house. This. That's great. All right. Enough <laughs> of that nonsense. Uh, Deacon Michael Stroyan joining us from the Apostolic Joanne Church to talk more about necromancy. No, wait, no, to talk about early Christian magic. No, necromancy is part of it. Anyway, hello, Deacon. Hi there. How's it going? <laughs> good, good. So um, <clears throat> we had an interesting conversation in our video show. So if you haven't watched that yet, uh, it's not too late. It's still there. That's how the Internet works. You can go and, and watch it. So uh, go ahead and do that and then come back. We'll be here on your phone waiting for you. Um, at any rate, so we had some interesting conversations about what kinds of magic the early Christians might have been practicing and what things they were being accused of, and was Jesus a necromancer, and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So let's get right back into it. Um, I did want to bring up, you mentioned um, that carving or uh, iconic images of Jesus with a magic wand of some kind. Um, there is an interesting piece in the Leviticon, and I like to bring up the Leviticon as much as possible, um, in, uh, in the Gospel of John, where in the second uh, chapter where it talks about the, uh, the wedding at Cana and turning water into wine, there's, there's a difference in the Leviticon version of that story that I find pretty interesting. <coughs> um, so let's start with about 2.6. So uh, actually, so right at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, a wedding took place at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were also invited. Now the wine ran out, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they do not have any wine at all. The next two verses are missing in Leviticon. They're not there. It goes directly to, there were six stone pots in this place containing about two or three measures. Jesus said to them, fill the pots with water and bring them closer to me, and they filled them to the top. And he touched the water, and, and having touched the water, he said to them, you can... Uh, now carry them to the head waiter, and they took them to him. So that little piece about and having touched the water is in Leviticon does not appear in any of the canonical versions of the Bible. I find that particularly interesting that in this miracle, Jesus actually has to physically do something in order to turn the water into wine, but in other versions he doesn't. Anybody want to weigh in on that? Yeah, um, I guess I'll go first, and then the deconstruction... I'm sure probably has thoughts on it, but I find that very interesting. Um, I believe it's uh, uh, Gospel of Mark where Jesus, um, you know, he spits, he, he heals mm -hmm. a blind man with a spit, right? Yep, yep. And then when that story is retold in either Luke or Matthew or both, I can't remember which, they, they the, the miracle, the context, the place are all the same, but Jesus is no longer using his spit to heal him. He just, just heals him. So, uh, and I, you know, th this idea of like the healing of the spit, the healing of the touching, the, the spitting and the mixing with dirt and applying it to the eyes, apparently that was something done by both healers and magicians in the ancient world. And here you have later editors, later redactors who have taken the story, are obviously uncomfortable with it, but don't want to get rid of the miracle, so they kind of take the magic part out. Mm -hmm. So that sounds exactly like what you're saying, Father, that if the, if the Leviticon version is earlier, you have a later editor who's like, I don't like, I don't like him doing a magic trick. Yeah. We better, we better miracle up this miracle story. I might be walking back from my opinion that the Leviticon version is older. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things that I've been reading about... Um, scholarship on the Gospel of John and how there are specific passages that are like hallmark passages like this this passage means that this particular document is X amount of years old right. um, and anyway not to get yeah, into the boring stuff I, I still stick to the I was I'm, I'm, well a recent convert but uh, um, the thing is with these texts is that it's it's I don't think it's ever accurate to say the Leviticon is the earlier, right. earlier version of John. Uh, these uh, uh, the Bible and Bible books probably went through a lot of different versions. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that John in particular did because seams show more than basically almost any other book in the Bible. 
uh, the, the, the seams are quite obvious when you start looking for them. All of a sudden, Jesus is in one place, and, and all of a sudden, he's in the next place, and information repeats, and they mention, you know, X amount of signs, but they only show this number of signs. Uh, the ending is obviously tacked on. Mm -hmm. Actually, two endings are obviously tacked on. So Leviticon is an alternate version. There was probably a lot of versions of Gospel John floating around. We're off topic, but it's the podcast. That's right. Uh, we go wherever we want. Said, Deacon, what, what do you think about that story in Leviticon and John? Well, I mean, I'm definitely of the opinion that what we see in Leviticon might represent a particular community's experiences and usage of the scripture. We have that in pretty much every canonical gospel, as well as, you know, non-canonical literature. Uh, we have the infancy gospel of Jesus, mm -hmm. which, you know, you have a little baby Jesus playing by the riverbanks, making uh, doves out of clay. His dad, Joseph, says, hey, you're committing idolatry on the Sabbath. And bam, they fly away as real doves. Yeah. Now, the story that's also in the Quran. What was that? I said that story is also in the Quran. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you also have that in the Quran as well. And, uh, you know, the one thing, actually, going back to touch, I mean, touch definitely, even today, in our rites of, you know, healing the infirm, you have to touch the person, anoint them, in order for them to be chrismated, or the same in the um, baptism, same in confirmation. Um, the other, I forget which gospel it is, I believe this is Mark or Matthew, um, when Jesus actually heals the uh, deaf person and puts his hands in his ears and whispers, Epibata, be open which is very, very interesting. Now, Jesus would very likely have known or had a working knowledge of Greek, but it's very, very curious that the Greek is being used here, where in, say, the crucifixion narrative, you know, you definitely have him saying, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, in uh, Aramaic. So I find that very, very fascinating to see the contrast there and the very specific use of one language that, he likely would have used, but was definitely not his first language. And then towards, you know, the end of his life, using his own birth language. Maybe that something that is, was specifically in a ritual context. Precisely, mm -hmm. precisely, because you see this especially in the magical papyri, where you have what are called the vocis magicae, or the babara onomata, uh, the barbarous words. Now, in the Chaldean oracles, we see this admonition of change not the barbarous words, etc., 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 for they have power. Now, many of these words would just have been calculated by the magicians, saying, hey, this has a universal power, we're going to use it. So when you see Yao, which clearly comes from Ya, um, as a Greek rendering of uh, the Tetragrammaton, then, yeah, they just calculated that it had a universal power, and they didn't have to be Christian or even Jewish to employ it. So I definitely think that there is part of that tradition definitely present, in, even in Scripture. Let's jump go ahead. ahead. Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to jump ahead a little bit and talk about the, um, about the Gnostics. That's uh, what I was going to do. Oh, good. <laughs> we work so well together. Um, so... Uh, there, obviously, the Gnostics were accused of, of using magic and doing all kinds of um, ridiculous and awful things, and, and maybe some of them were true, and, and maybe some of them weren't. But um, what, what do you think that the uh, that the Gnostic magicians were doing back around the second century or so? I definitely think, as inheritors of uh, Hellenic thought, and definitely being exposed to communities and being hypersyncretic themselves, they were very, very likely doing some form of magic or operations that definitely had a magical effect. You see this in um, the liberating rites of the Sethians where, you know, you're doing markings of sigils effectively or magical signs and saying these barbarous words mm -hmm. in long strings of syllables in order to attain gnosis and ultimately redemption. Um, you also see the uh, famous uh, Basilidean uh, Gnostic gems, or the Abraxas stones, where you have a deity that's very clearly non-Jewish, 
and actually might have some origins in a Thracian religion, um, as I'm coming to understand. But being invoked as an agent of Yahweh, or Yao, to uh, protect the wearer from uh, evil. Same with the uh, adoption of the Canubis symbol as uh, representing the Demiurge as what I would suspect, and some scholars suspect, kind of as a way of making yourself invisible to him so you can go about and do your thing and not have to worry about being subjected to archonic powers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, w I would be remiss if I let an episode go by and I didn't mention uh, visionary ascent uh, stuff. So here's my obligatory mention of that. Go, go see any of the previous 750 episodes of the show or whatever uh, for more information about that. But I absolutely think that the, uh, the ancient Gnostics and, and even more recent groups such as um, uh, the Bogomils and Cathars, I'm coming to understand, have, having been reading um, Andrew mm -hmm. Philip Smith's new book, uh, that there was definitely something going on there as far as a, a visionary ascent practice that the ancient Gnostics and, and the more middle Gnostics were practicing. Um, and I know there's something there. I don't exactly know what it is yet, but I, I'm determined to find out. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so to clarify, the, um, the, the early Gnostics, pretty soon, pretty, pretty early in, in the history of Gnosticism, we're we're using you know what what we or might call magic and what their contemporaries called magic in a way that's kind of different uh, from some of the folk magic that we talked about in the um, mm -hmm. in the uh, um, in the video show. Like they are, they're using what we would call magic to, uh, to you know to touch the face of God or to to change themselves, to have visionary experiences, to become enlightened, and to experience gnosis. Would you say that that's correct? I mean, they were probably also doing, you know, the, the same kind of, I don't want to make a differentiation, but, you know, that kind of folk magic that we're talking about earlier. But, but do you think that they were also kind of using uh, this, uh, what we would call magic, to, uh, to, to get enlightened? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in fact, you see a lot of elements of uh, Hellenic thought and theurgical thought, especially, in the magical papyri. And I think that what the Gnostics were doing, it was very, very much in line with that. Um, you see them, you know, doing their ascent workings, which, you know, bear a lot of resemblance to things you see in the magical papyri. Um, probably the most famous being an exorcism ritual called the uh, Bornless Rite or the uh, Stele of Jehu, the hieroglyphist, where you basically unite yourself with the Akefale, the Headless One, as a way of getting rid of evil. Now you see, again, in the Sethian rituals, some of their ascent workings were referred to um, in the Bruce Codex as a spiritual baptism or a second baptism that, once again, has a lot in common with some of the more, I guess, loftier rites that you see in the magical papyri. Now, am I saying that the Gnostics weren't also doing what we would just call folk magic? I think that there might be some element of truth in what the heresiologists were saying about the Gnostics, especially um, using magic to perform abortions or to affect healing of some kind. At that time, the intersection between magic and medicine was almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. As we say all the time when we talk about the Apocryphon of John specifically, uh, in the long version, there's that whole list of uh, the names of the demons associated with the different parts of the body, and that was almost certainly there explicitly for the purpose of healing magic, right? When you know the name of a thing, you have power over it. Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. And you see that also uh, mirrored in the, um, what is it, the uh, Testament of Solomon, mm -hmm. which was, again, an early modern magical text that lists all these angels and spirits that control you know various parts of the body and the various astrological spheres and it is right in line with that specific tradition mm -hmm. now fast forward i think to the seventh century although don't hold me to that exactly there's a a recent book that came out about six months ago maybe a little bit longer um called uh, coptic handbook of ritual power which is an interesting 
little piece of, it's a little book uh, made of papyrus. It's, it's quite small, um, but it contains uh, some interesting magical traditions that were practiced by ostensibly Sethians. Um, it has a lot of, of uh, bears a lot of relationship to Sethian texts, but of course in the 7th century there probably weren't a lot of actual Sethians around. Um, although this little scrap of uh, a magical book, it was probably somebody's like little ritual handbook that they walked around with and actually did. Um, there's healing things in there, there's some cursing things in there, and all kinds of like just everyday magic that you'd want to do to you know make make sure your crops are growing or what I don't remember what all the specific mm -hmm. spells are in there, but I found that to be very interesting that this Sethian tradition outlasted the Sethians themselves, really, um, in this particular case. So if you get a chance to pick up that book, it's a little bit on the expensive side. Amazon has, as of this recording, only a few left. So, um, And it's like 80 bucks US, 85. Ugh, that's a check it out for the library. Yeah, check it out from the library if you can. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but I, I did buy it, and it's, and it's a very... It's a very good book and, and worth Borrow a read. Father Toby, if you have the chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just show up. Everybody come to Chelmsford. I'll lend you a book. Um, no, don't do that. <laughs> but, yeah, but I, I, it's, it's a fascinating little piece of history that of the things that the Sethians could have been remembered for, you know, 500 or so years after they're um, fading away, uh, it's these kind of magical incantations that, uh, that survived after them. Yeah, well I, well, I definitely think that's a very distinct possibility. Um, one of the things that this text might be reflective of is a preservation by an exorcist class um, mm. in uh, Magic in the Middle Ages as well as in um, uh, the Munich Handbook. Uh, Richard Kickheffer talks about basically what we would call an ecclesiastical underground, where you would have deacons, exorcists, and whatnot, or other clerics who were underemployed and <laughs> wanted to have some fun or learn more about the spiritual world. Now this is fascinating because in the Orthodox Church the uh, order of exorcist was never really strictly set in stone in the same way as it was in the West. And even to this day in Africa um, amongst the uh, Coptic Christians in uh, both Egypt and in Ethiopia you basically have a non-ordained exorcist class that utilizes handbooks like what we would see with the Coptic Handbook of Ritual Power and go around doing their blessings and their cures and whatnot and it's perfectly licensed because they believe that they're actually acting on the will of God mm -hmm. and even to this day in Ethiopia you have a very strong magical tradition of writing the psalms and whatnot and other various prayers on little pieces of parchment that are then rolled up and placed in a little, little leather phylactery that, you know, you can get blessed by your priest, and it's a non-issue. Mm -hmm. there's, there's an interesting little piece of, and I can't remember, because I'm listening to a podcast at the moment about the Cathars as well as reading uh, Andrew Philip Smith's new book about the Cathars, so I don't remember where I got this little piece of, of trivia, but... Um, one of the um, one of the clerics who was involved in the early stages of the the Cathar um, uh, wars in 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 southern France um, was he he was uh, very excited to see that through his divinatory powers he saw that the Cathars would be wiped out in southern France and everybody said oh great all right then let's join in and go and and kill us some you know some Cathars and. That was one of the that was one of the reasons why that particular crusade was so popular, is because there was just Christians doing divination about it, and yeah. nobody seemed to bat an eye back then. Well, no, no. In fact, uh, there is a very famous text, um, the Ibramantia, which is very, very explicitly a um, Christian manual of divination, and that was not deemed inappropriate. I mean, even through the late Middle Ages, you have. Christians and clergy themselves uh, practicing forms of divination that no one would bat an eye at. I mean, geomancy is probably the most famous. Mm -hmm. But there are some forms of divination that have never been allowed by Christianity, even if it was being practiced. We go back to necromancy. But 
a difference then at that point between praying to the dead and actually conjuring them up. The thought process eventually, as early as the uh, church fathers, was that necromancy and raising the dead was bad because, well, pagans did it, and <laughs> the only reason why the dead could speak was through the agency of demons and even Satan himself. But I can understand the, uh, the thought process of, of, of Christians, uh, you know, turning towards necromancy because, of course, Christ would be the ultimate necromancer because, you know, A, he raised a man from the dead, chatted with him, and uh, uh, B, he himself died and came back to life. So it, it does seem like an almost uh, obvious connection to make if you're in this, into this stuff, right? And if people at that time are into that stuff uh, and have that world view, and it, it just seems blatantly obvious. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think part of this definitely does harken back to the idea of Jesus the necromancer. And this actually, very interestingly enough, is preserved through the Middle Ages. Um, there is a fine tradition of Jesus the necromancer that existed through, uh, well, yeah, um, the 17th century in Iberia, where, you know, you have the idea of Jesus on the Mount transfiguring himself and also, you know, calling on Jesus for intercession to be able to speak to the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, this, interestingly enough, got hyper-syncretized with uh, various deities in the Congo and mm -hmm. survives to this day in uh, Brazil, which was uh, a Portuguese colony and definitely had a very strong uh, traffic with the uh, Atlantic trade of slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the Af African diaspora traditions um, uh, that are you know, kind of blatantly Christian magic, but that's uh, that's a much more recent, uh, much more recent phenomenon, I think. Than it is recent, but more in recent, many ways, <laughs> it's, it's 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 more recent, but it does definitely preserve a uh, chain of thought that had existed and goes back to early Christianity. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's there is a continuity at stake here that. Sure. I definitely think, thankfully, now that magic is being examined more academically, we'll be able to better examine. Mm -hmm. That is an interesting phenomenon that's happening too among among uh, academic circles. Is this was you, you couldn't touch this with a forty foot pole a few years ago, but now you're seeing a lot more scholars who are interested in this kind of research, and I think that's very refreshing. Oh, it is. It's absolutely refreshing. I'm really excited to see the work coming out, especially through uh, Penn State Press. Mm -hmm. um, their Magic and History series is just yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah, I believe they're the ones who published that um, Yeah, they were. Can book. Yeah. yeah, and uh, just in general, the um, extra-canonical traditions of, of the early church, of, of you know, early church communities that didn't eventually fall in line with orthodoxy, it has, uh, has long been a, a, a taboo subject for for scholars, that's 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 coming around. Spe yeah. So speaking of extra uh, <laughs> extra canonical sources, let's talk about Simon Magus. I threw his name in here in the show notes about fifteen minutes ago, um, for no particular reason other than I thought of him. Right? Uh, he was certainly uh, an early um, uh, contemporary of the early Christians. Um, I'm not entirely sure if he would have considered himself a Christian, uh, but he was, uh, he was a magician according to Acts and other sources. So um, wh what was he doing? Did anybody have any thoughts about him? I would suspect that Simon Magus was definitely a uh, proto-Gnostic. I'm not comfortable saying necessarily that he was full-on Gnostic as what we would see exemplified by the Valentinians or by any other community. But then again, you also have Marcus the Magician, mm -hmm. a Valentinian, who also eerily kind of fits the bill of the uh, Simon Magus narrative, which makes me wonder if one was not inspired by the other. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and according to the heresiologist, you know, Simon Magus is a... Um, He's a uh, uh, the the one who started. I mean, I, I don't believe this. I mean, the heresiologists have to take them with a grain of salt. But he's what Jesus is to Christianity. Simon Magus is to Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. 
right? He, he started the whole shebang. And if he is a historical figure, just, just like Deconstruction uh, said, then he, uh, uh, he definitely had a, uh, um, a very interesting proto-Gnostic system. I, I find yeah. it interesting as well, you, you know, Simon Magus might be a, um, a, uh, a composite figure. Mm -hmm. um, made up of a few historical figures, and there's a theory that one of those historical figures, or one of those main figures, is is actually Saint Paul. Yeah, um, right. And, and you also the, uh, you also have him being a a possibility of being a, com a composite with Apollonius of Tyana, who was yeah. a contemporary of Jesus himself, and who some people, mythologists whose views I respectfully uh, disagree with, um, often attribute. Jesus's miracles to being those of Apollonius's. Yeah, he's certainly an interesting figure and, and worth a whole show on his own uh, to, to talk about him. But I, I've been is, thinking that we, we really do need a, a Simon Vegas show. Yeah. So. But we are not prepared right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, well, well worth bringing up. And, and you have this figure, you know, who's, who's in the Bible, mm -hmm. who might be a, a figure, you know, who, who might represent Paul, someone that... Uh, that no orthodox or or even non-orthodox person would ever associate with magic, right? To think that some of um, uh, Paul's other Christian um, uh, critics would be calling him a magician just goes to show you what this uh, 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 what this name calling really means, right? This I, I disagree with you, so you must be a magician. Yep. Right. Well, and you also have the. Uh notorious wars between uh, Paul and Peter before they made good. And yeah. Peter was largely serving the uh, Jewish Christian communities while Paul was out there converting all the Gentiles. And that would have been very, very suspect, especially um, amongst the Jewish Christians who at that time seemed to be fairly xenophobic. Um, you get this very clear in the Gospel of John where uniquely probably the earliest uh, communities of Joannine Christians were Samaritan and not Jewish, and that seems to have caused no small amount of distress. Mm -hmm. So you definitely, with magic, have the intersection of race relations and uh, class relations, which is very, very fascinating, because then you get to the point of which form of magic is allowable, such as, uh, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, many saints are called uh, domothorgies, um, which means wonder worker, but it also relates itself very, very closely and uncomfortably closely at times to Goetia, where you're raising the dead, consulting with various daimons and so forth. So, once again, you see this tradition being borne out and even continue to this day. Uh, St. Nicholas, for example, being a famous thaumaturge. Yes, and it's December 12th, so... It is. Uh, we're we're getting into that that season. Yeah, the, it is um, that season. Yes. So, so go find an Aryan and punch him in the face. Punch him, punch him. Yeah. Anybody who has a, yeah. a different christological formula than you, <laughs> punch him in the nose. Celebrate out the feast of Saint Nicholas. And for those who are new, when ago. when we say Aryan, we're not talking about the ones that the Germans yeah. were interest, interested in a yes. few decades ago. This is a whole different. Google it. Just Google it. Although. Punch a neo-Nazi in the nose. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah, if you have the opportunity. <laughs> uh, we're getting to the part of the show I like to call odds and ends. But, uh, <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, yeah, coming back uh, earlier um, to both the beginning of this show and the beginning of the, the video show, uh, I, I was happy when I discovered this, but the, um, the Leviticon narrative about, about Jesus studying magic or esotericism mm -hmm. in, in Egypt sounds like a real 19th century thing, right? There's yeah. this obsession with the time of Egypt, and Egypt is the center of magic. But as Deconstruction said, uh, the uh, the narrative actually goes back to maybe even the first century, maybe even 50 or 60 years after Jesus himself, because it is in the Talmud, and, and the dating is, is it's a little tricky, because um, uh, there's stuff in the, the Talmud that's, that's you know, it's thought to go back a lot earlier than, than, than it was collected. And then uh, the Jesus in Egypt there, uh, learning magic in, in Egypt is in Celsus too. So it's like the middle of the first century. Yeah. So this is a, an almost 2,000-year-old tradition. So I, Well, it goes back to you know, a few weeks ago when we, were ha when we had our show about um, Jesus in India. You know, there's this 
just large chunk of the story that's missing and that people want to fill it in. And so um, one of the easy things to fill that in with, whether it's true or not, I mean, you, you, we know that Jesus went to Egypt, right? He fled with his family to Egypt. That's part of the story that we have in the canonical Bible. Um, fast forward 30 years, here's Jesus. So it's easy to fill in and say, oh, well, we know he was in Egypt. So what, what might he have done while he was there? He seems to know a lot of stuff. Maybe he learned from the Egyptians. Yes, well, and that is a distinct possibility. If he was in Egypt, he would definitely have been exposed to various forms of folk magic mm -hmm. and uh, temple worship. Whether or not he achieved the highest levels of initiation, as is claimed in the uh, institutional narrative, yeah, um, he would have had some familiarity. And we have to keep in mind that the world at that time was very much more cosmopolitan than we give it credit for. Often. Sure. Yeah. Similarly, while he would have been in uh, around Nazareth and Jerusalem. He would very, very well have been exposed to various forms of Hellenic magic. Mm -hmm. And we do know that we had these Hellenic wandering magicians going through that area back and forth on a regular basis. Yep. So could it be possible that he picked up things? It's very, very possible. Whether he did or not, who knows? Mm -hmm. That's something that I keep saying that I should learn more about is the Greek magical papyri, but... Who has the time? My goodness, there's I so much. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've said to Father, Father Tony many times that the uh, the the unofficial slogan of, of Gnostics is is three magical words. It's have you read? Well, of course, there's a fourth word in there. But have you read? Have you read? You hear about this book? Have you read? <laughs> it's it's true. It's true. But anyway, I do recommend, if you haven't picked up yet, uh, pick up Andrew Philip Smith's new book on um, the Cathars. I think it's the secret, uh, the secret Practices of the Cathars or something like that. Um, I would also definitely suggest uh, Practicing Gnosis by DeConnick as well as uh, yes. ancient, ancient Christian Magic by Marvin Meyer. Those are also really, really great texts. Oh, yeah, you're trying to bring it back to the topic. So somebody has to do it. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what that's what you that's what you signed me on for. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, how, how about uh, how about Jesus the Magician by Morton Smith? That's a good one. Yeah. It's not it's not terrible. It's not terrible. All right. I haven't read yeah. that one either. Yeah. I I like it. Yeah. Well, he's he's a name that comes up when you talk about this uh, when you talk about this subject. Certainly. Oh yes yes well and. We'll see later how it was preserved, even through the medieval period. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we've got to save all that all that juice for our for our sequel show. <laughs> um, the uh, oh yeah, for odds and ends, when we we're talking about kind of you know magic that's allowed and magic that's not allowed, and of course clergy doing magic. Father Tony did mention the um, did mention the, the Eucharist in, in an apostolic church, which you know. Uh, some people do label as magic and uh and you know some protestants in a negative sense say those those catholics or anglicans or insert the church of your choice are just trying to do magic spells in a church the um isn't that I the church that... you'd want to go to though i mean they sound like they're <laughs> having more fun yes exactly <laughs> And uh, I did remember, uh, I looked it up on, uh, on, on Wikipedia, Hocus Pocus, which mm -hmm. of course is a phrase sometimes used to, uh, 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 in magic, is, is sometimes thought to, to come from the Latin for this is my body. Yep. Hecusons corpus meum. Yeah, um, there is a degree of theurgical thought in Eucharistic theology. And what is interesting is you can say theurgical without necessarily referring strictly to magic. Uh, if you look at uh, Dionysus the Areopagite's uh, thesis is on uh, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, he goes into what is Neoplatonic theurgic thought, effectively, in describing how the Eucharist and everything about the liturgy itself uh, comes together in a uh, very, very organized Neoplatonic fashion that has applied magically. Um, I would also like to use the example once again of Marcus the Magician when uh, he was celebrating his Eucharist. Um, he did a little hocus pocus himself to change the color of the wine um, to red uh, from ostensibly what was water. 
Now, we know that we have similar uh, examples of magicians doing that. How is it done? It's probably a variable recipe, but <laughs> there's a magical element to that. And ritual drama, um, especially, is a very, very utilized experience. Mm-hmm. We even see this in uh, the liturgies of the Eucharist today, where, you know, historically, the uh, up until the uh, the Ordo of the Eucharist, uh, those who were not confirmed had to be kicked out of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, what was going through their minds when, oh, they're being kicked out of the church? What's what's going on here? There's something really super secret, and the, even the language itself of uh, the Eucharist is couched in sacrificial symbolism that would have been shocking at the time from a uh, religio-magical perspective. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of, there's a lot that gets taken for granted in the Eucharist today, I think, just because it's so old. Um, you know, and everybody's seen it and everybody, you know, for generations and generations and generations, but you know, I, I think that there's I think it's it's worth if you haven't it's worth sitting down and really thinking about what's happening there and and thinking about the text of the ritual itself and and uh, and, and exploring that for yourself if you haven't done that yet you know if you don't if you don't often go to church and I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast and watch our video show are not um, ecclesiastical gnostics so, but uh, you know even if even if it's not your bag. Uh, if, if you're interested in the occult or esoteric stuff or, you know, just want to see what somebody's done for 2,000 years, it's, it's worth, uh, or more, depending on who you listen to, it's worth doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about ritual for a bit, actually. Um, there is, um, there's a lot of ritual in magic, but it, but are, but are those two circles the same circle on a Venn diagram, or...? You know, in current academic discourse, um, there has been a move away from necessarily separating magic from religion. Um, religion and magic being both couched in cultural identity and practices. We see in a lot of Christian magical texts, as well as magical texts from around the world, things that would, you know, harken back to and draw on um, liturgical practices. Now, that just means that it's an extension of uh, public piety at that point. Whether the uh, elite like it or not, it's still there. Um, at that time, magic was flat out outlawed by the Roman state and also, I believe, by the Greek city-states as well. And yet, you have politicians going to diviners and procuring uh, various things to uh, curse the hell out of their opponents. Uh, politically or personally, that is that magic? If you're putting it in a temple, you clearly have an uh, attachment to the temple complex. So I think it was very, very similar in the early mind of the minds of the early Christians and persisted to this day. Mm -hmm. So speaking of this day, what do you feel the legacy of Christian magic is today? What, what do you, is there a group that's, or are there groups that are practicing something close to what a, an early Christian magic tradition might have looked like? I could make a really strong argument that what we see with uh, various churches, uh, historically black churches, as well as the Pentecostals, um, those that tend to go into ecstatic states, perform exorcisms and speak in tongues really does harken back to an atavistic element of Christianity that we definitely see evidence of in early church documents. Uh, The Priscillians especially are a great example that are often spoken of in in the same context as the Gnostics who practice extreme ecstatic dance and uh, oracular utterances. And there's some thought as well that the uh, Babara Onomata that you see in Gnostic magical texts may not have actually been calculated, you know, like we would modernly calculate, say, Gematria or for any other value than it was just 
um, recording utterances mm-hmm. that is much like you see in Glossiologia. Yeah, like um, the Holy Grail is in the castle. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that there's elements, they wouldn't call it magic na- naturally. Right. But ecstatic ritual often has its context with magical uh, practices as well. So there's that. Um, I mean, modern folk traditions of, you know, praying a novena, that does have a religio-magical effect, as well as, you know, the holding on of relics and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters would definitely not say that that's magic in and of itself, but it is a preservation of the cult of the dead, which, again, we go back to Goetia and necromancy, so... Yeah. How, how, how one views it, how one wants to couch the theology is, well, that's yeah. up to them. Right. <laughs> I'm reminded of the, um, the traditional practice of, of burying a uh, St. Joseph statue upside down in your yard if you're trying to sell your house. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely. lots of little things like that. St. Anthony, help me find my keys so I can get to work. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely think those are religio-magical acts that just seem to have stuck. Mm-hmm. Well, building on, a, on, on sort of what you're talking about here in the modern age, um, Deacon, do you feel that the, uh, the... We've talked a, a few times now about how basically magic is a branding issue, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, sometimes I think about you know, when we're talking about the early the early Gnostics and what they're doing with their ascent practices uh, and, you know, ceremonial magicians today who uh, were using, quote-unquote, magic to 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 reach a, a higher state. Um, and, and I've got to say, even for myself, I'm interested in this stuff. I read about it and I discuss it on a podcast every week. But if, if I tell someone that I know, uh, I'm going to go, oh, you know, what are you doing tonight? Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do some magic, I'm going to do some ritual magic. You know, then, then my, the person I'm talking to, the, 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 the uh, I'm conversing with, probably will think that's a crazy statement, right? And they'll, look around. They'll, they'll, they'll probably think you're going to go play with uh, some cards from Wizards of the Coast, I imagine. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, a good, that's a good point. That's a good point, actually. That's probably the first thing they would think. Uh, but if I explain, no, no, you know, I'm going to light candles and put on robes. So uh, they'll probably look for like a white coat to put me in if it's just one of my secular friends. But if I said, if they asked, you know, what are you doing tonight? It's like, well, I'm going to do these rituals and meditations um, and uh, practices so that I can uh, unite with the divine. Then chances are they're going to nod their heads and be like, oh, that sounds really cool. So Nobody's going to say I, that. <laughs> no, that's We're true. the only people who think that's cool. No one's, no one's going to think that's cool, but they cool is not the right word. But they're yeah. not going to think that your friends are going to go. Great. Okay, Jonathan's okay. off doing his weird stuff again. But they're John, not. They're not gonna, where, where, where's that goat head now? Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is, I, I think this branding issue exists to this to this day, right? They, they won't think it's cool. They they may not think it's nutty. Uh, and sometimes I look at you know Tibetan Buddhism has a very good reputation in the West, and it's quote unquote cool. Um, luckily, my wife doesn't listen to the show, and neither do my in-laws. But when I look at some of the, the you know, some of the uh, stuff that Tibetan Buddhists do, it looks an awful lot like magic. Um, and it, oh, you know, it's, the rituals they do are, are very theurgic and, and very magical. And um, I'm just wondering if, like, if more Christians could benefit from some of these practices uh, if the branding was a little bit different. <sighs> well. I mean, a lot of the bias that we have in our modern thought against magic actually has less to do with medieval concepts of uh, religious piety, but rather from the negative side effects of the 19th century, um, 18th, 19th century, Enlightenment era materialistic reductionism. Mm -hmm. Anything that smacks of ritual or superstition or non-reason automatically gets... uh, kind of pushed on the side while, you know, you can say, hey, I'm going to go to Mass. And, you know, for the most part, people will be cool with that. Now, I definitely maintain that magic has been a part of every religion, uh, whether they call it that or not. I <clears throat> would say that it matters uh, knowing about, um, but not in the sense that everyone should go out and start learning magic. 
rather that it's something that we need to be aware of as part of our common cultural matrices, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, many of the spells that you see are, you know, nice. They're for protection. They're for healing. Who couldn't benefit from that? Often it was just as simple as saying a certain prayer and laying on hands. Uh, that continued in folk magical traditions up to this present day. And then you get down to some that are pretty close to what we consider today uh, rapey and murdery, <laughs> which, uh, you know, that's generally universally frowned on. Um, a friend of mine has gone on record as saying, uh, in relation to witchcraft especially, which many people uh, confuse today with uh, Wicca, but was actually a very, very Christian continuation of Christo-pagan-ish practices. Um, the people who were accused of being witches and actually did engage in these magical practices, they probably didn't call themselves witches. You know, they would have been healers. They would have been so forth. The definition of a witch and a good witch is an assassin. And that's often the same that was said historically of the people who practiced Goetia. But when you engage in things such as theurgical operations, that tends to have a class prestige to it. Mm -hmm. It means you're educated. So you can kind of get a blind eye turned to it. I like to look at Ficino, who himself was a Catholic priest, and all the writings that he did on Neoplatonism and the construction of talismans, which... Clearly, that goes against church doctrine, but he's a priest, and hey, he's talking about smart stuff, which is not the same as, you know, the grandmother sticking pins in a, a lemon and hanging it in her uh, chimney to protect herself, herself from the evil eye. Right. There is a kind of a classism there as well, that, you know, um, people use uh, distinctions like high magic and low magic, or black magic and white magic, or, you know, all these kinds of things that... Um, are artificial distinctions to a certain degree, I think, anyway. I mean, I... I, I agree. Yeah, I, I think there's yeah. a lot of people who are coming around to that way of thinking lately, but um, but they are, I mean, it is kind of on a spectrum of what you're trying to do with it. If your aims are kind of worldly, I'd like to get a sports car, then, you know, that's on kind of one end of the spectrum. And if I want to unite my consciousness with the divine, that's on a different end of the spectrum. But, is it, the, it, you know, it, it's not necessarily that one is good and one is bad. Um, I think we could all agree that if you're trying to, you know, put a curse on your neighbor because their dog barks in the middle of the night, that's probably bad. Um, but I don't uh, know. I've done that once or twice. <laughs> some dogs are really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> but... Um, but it all depends on, on which side of the which side of the, the act that you're looking at it from, I suppose. Like if you're looking down, quote unquote, at a at at low magic practitioners or if you're looking up at the you know, the the theurgists and the white magic practitioners or whatever you want to call them that um, I like to call them the snooty ones. There's snooty people, yeah, there's snooty people who do magic and <laughs> have always been and and will always be, I suppose, with anything. And you know, we've had we've had shows on the network here about um, Gnostic elitism, and and I think there's a there's a place for Gnostic elitism, um, as long as you're not a jerk about it. Uh, but you know, definitely. Well, and I also think that there's a fine tradition of uh, Gnostic get down dirty and rock with the spirits. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So. Uh, <coughs> Unfortunately, we're running out of time, and there's a whole lot that I just wanted to go off on some several tangents uh, there that, that we unfortunately Absolutely. will not be able to do uh, this time, but uh, it's a long life, and, and we'll get to do it all again in a few weeks uh, with some other topics. So anyway, uh, let's start to wrap things up. Deacon Michael Stroyan, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, sharing your input with us. This has been a very interesting topic, and I, I think that everyone listening will agree. Thank you for having me on, and yeah, it was a wonderful chance to talk about things that we often don't talk about um, right. in either Christian or Gnostic communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell everybody where they can find you online if they wanted to get in touch with you and continue the conversation. Uh, you can find me on my WordPress blog, The Digital in Caridian, um, www. We'll put it. Don't, we'll put it in the. <laughs> yeah, put it in there later. Yeah, um, and you can also find me on Facebook. So, 
All right. Very good. Uh, Jonathan, any last words? This is your I, chance. I, no, I, I think, uh, well, you know, there's 10 more uh, uh, alleys we could go down. But yep. uh, we will save those alleys for another time. But, uh, yeah, another another awesome show. And thanks again for coming on, Deacon. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I just wanted to make a plug for our Patreon campaign. So if there are people out there who are enjoying this show and uh, the shows that we do on the network, and you have not become a patron on our Patreon page, I would love it if you did. Uh, every little bit helps. Uh, we've got a lot of plans and we want to grow the network and I've got a whole bunch of new shows that I want to bring on board, but we can't do it without your help. So visit patreon.com slash Gnostic. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Gnostic. You'll hear it in the credits in just a second. Um, but for those of you who are patrons and you get to see the podcast visually on the YouTubes and on, as a secret link, uh, you'll see um, my co-host's fabulous bowling shirt. So um, that's a, you know, it's a perk. So <laughs> if you want to see Jonathan's bowling shirt, then uh, you you got to subscribe. you got to do it. Uh, you got to become a patron. So It's actually pretty amazing. It is. It's great. I, I, I'm jealous in all kinds of ways. I covet. I covet his shirt. But that's... That's neither here nor there. Let's wrap up the show now. For everybody listening along at home, we will see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c. Thank you.